With issues like healthcare rights and election integrity on the line this November, there's reason to be concerned about the future of the U.S. The good news, you can help. With no more than six hours a week, you can volunteer with Tech for Campaigns and use your design skills to help swing district Democrats win local elections. State and local races often come down to only a few hundred votes. Having a strong digital presence and reaching new voters through digital ads and email campaigns can be what makes the difference. Democracy needs you. Volunteer at techforcampaigns.org forward slash volunteer. Hi, this is Sarah Tebow. And this is Liz Bernstein, and we are the hosts of the Side Woo Podcast. This is a space to investigate what makes a creative life possible. From the mundane to the sublime, the physical to the metaphysical. Welcome to the Side Woo. Yeah, I, I'm very excited about it. It's just I haven't really gotten it fully set up yet because I'm like waiting on some stuff I or like a legs for the table and you know things like that but but yeah I'm really happy about it it's been needed for a very long time so I have to say I'm envious I'm like exploding out of my studio <laughs> which is nice but they aren't yeah I bet I know those those studios are small I mean yeah they are yeah. yeah and your canvases are and big mm-hmm <laughs> mm-hmm yeah, for me, it was more about, yeah, I use so many different processes now that like having only one workspace, one table, every time I switched from like, okay, I'm painting to I'm like cut yeah. trimming prints to I'm doing collage to I'd have to clean up everything and like no. start over. I couldn't work on any of those techniques simultaneously, which was a real problem for the workflow. I feel that. And I feel lucky because I'm by that area where you can use that big work table because yeah. anything clean, I just do it over there. Whereas it's not happening in my studio and I'm sure it's yeah. similar for you. Or, yeah. yeah. So yeah, my plan now is to have the desk and then to have two separate work tables. One that's like a yeah. wet table and one that's a dry table. Smart. That's so like traditional dark room. I love it. I know I'm, I'm yeah, it's very professional seeming. <laughs> yeah. The wet space, the dry yeah. It is the wet space, the dry space. Mm. I feel like the yeah. spirits are saying yes to the interview. Sincerely. Yeah. Okay. I'm like, I'm so excited. I want to ask. I want to ask okay. my first. Can I ask my first question? Okay. You you can. I just noticed right before we did this though that you didn't ever send me questions. I know. You know. I thought I had, and I'm so sorry. <laughs> It's okay. I just thought you, uh, you seemed more attached to that than I was. Okay. But then I like, right before we did this, I was like, oh my God, I forgot to look at her questions. And then I was like, wait, she didn't send them. I swear so. to God I did. I do not know what happened. You might there. have like a really long time ago because we had so many like false starts to this, you know? Yeah. I, that's yeah. what I'm wondering. Yeah. So sorry about that. But yeah, we're just going to fly in a wing and okay. a prayer right now. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Through all, all of yeah. Let me just say that I've read interviews where people talk to you about your work and I've looked at some of your artist statements and, you know, like read things on the wall. So yeah, Liz is a huge fan of your work and she's the photography expert. So let's just start with that. Huh. <laughs> okay. I just outed you. Oh, I'm a huge fan. Okay. So here, okay. So here we go. Oh, thanks, Sarah. That really, now I feel super cool. 
<laughs> I'm I'm a groupie and a and a nerd. So I'm interested in your work as it talks to you like personally and emotionally, mm-hmm. but less in the artist statement version mm-hmm. of your work, I think, because there's so much of that out there. But I'm very, very curious about how it impacts you emotionally when you're in the room with it. Okay. But I'm going to pause that before I even ask that question. Yes, I am a fan. And one of the things I'm a fan of besides the work, which is not a given because sometimes obviously people get very successful and you see the work and you're like, mm, that's okay. That's nice. But it doesn't <laughs> yeah, like you know, strike awe into your heart. But I have two things. One is what is the inside of being as successful as you are? I mean, when I got into the art world. I think, I, I think you might think I'm more successful than I am. Well, so I've heard, I've, people also say that, but like you are pretty damn successful. Like your work is around the town and around the globe and around the art fairs and, and on the walls. That's so sweet. You know, we're a culture that loves success. Like we love it. And then we love sort of nitpicking it and attacking mm-hmm. it and saying why the person does or doesn't deserve what they got, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. But yeah, what does it feel like? What is it like? Or do people get cranky? Do you get some backlash? So that's that's question one. And then okay. I just really need the listeners to understand something. Like I remember going to, there was an art fair at Fort Mason. This was like a whole bunch of years ago, like 20, Mm -hmm. definitely pre-pandemic, like 2017, Mm -hmm. I think, 2016. Mm -hmm. And I, this is full disclosure, I walked into the art fair ready for snark. I was like, let me go check out this girl's work because she is all (laughs) over the place and... Ready to be snarky specifically about my work or just about the art fair in general? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. Specifically about your work. Cause oh like I've only, I'd only seen you from afar, you know, mm-hmm. you go into these things. Well, but you and I met and oh, no. you come to the wow mom critique group. Didn't I meet you there? This, this was this before, before the wow mom maybe? critique group. So I walked in ready for some snark <laughs> and I actually saw your work and I shit you not. Like I fucking melted my brain out my body. <laughs> Like I could not, and viewers, I do, viewers, listeners, I don't say this lightly. Like I don't freak the fuck out about people's work unless I really am freaking out. I almost passed out. Like the level of beauty and detail in the pieces was truly beyond like what my brain could metabolize. So I just need to, so all of my lenses are through that, but now back to Mm -hmm. the success question. What's it like? Okay. (laughs) Well, there's so many things to say about that. I mean, number one, I really do think you think I'm more successful than I am. It doesn't feel like that exactly. (laughs) Like you're the response you just had to my work. That doesn't happen very often for me. It's not like everywhere I go, people are saying that. I do think that part of what you're saying about your reaction to the work 
really speaks to the fact that it's really different in person. And for people listening, and you know, if you're looking my work up online, like that's great, please do. But it, I think the something about the kind of tactile quality of these photograms made through texture is they have a quality in person that you just can't perceive any other way and that registers optically as I don't know, something strange, something something kind of unfamiliar and so detailed that you want to get up close to it. So I love hearing that when you saw something in person, you had that kind of reaction because that's how I feel about it, about these techniques. But, you know, that's hard to communicate online. In terms of like having successful things happening, I mean, you know, it's always such a moving target, right? Like you're always like, oh, I really want this opportunity. And then maybe if you're lucky that happens and then you're like, well, but I really need this other thing. Like it's hard to ever feel kind of settled in whatever's happened. That said, I'm super grateful for the opportunities I have. And one of the biggest ones actually has been having this studio. Uh, Sarah and I both have these this we both have studios in Minnesota Street Project. And it is, I cannot overstate like what, what an impact that's had. And really it's partly that I live like six minutes away from here and I have two kids. And so the convenience is just like life changing, you know? And then also the having a dark room in the same building as my studio, which I've been here for seven years and this is the first time that's ever happened. I used to go between like three different locations and always be loading stuff into my car and everything. So I know that's not like a public success, but for me, that's been like a a private success in that it's allowed me to go way deeper into the work actually, and spend way less time on logistics and that kind of stuff. And way more time actually in the part of making where you go into the zone and you feel yourself being in the flow of the work, because you don't always realize that that's this kind of sublime state that artists try to get to, right? But to get there, there's a whole bunch of logistical pieces that have to fall into place. And when they're not in place, you just don't get to have that feeling. And that feeling is the thing we're all after, at least I am, in that it's the time, you know, when I'm in my studio making and I'm in the flow of making, that's the moments when I feel both most like myself and simultaneously most connected to the world. And so... Yeah, so having a studio in a location with the facilities that I need is kind of everything. I mean, in terms of the like success question, I don't know what else to say. Like the the, the opportunities that I've had that feel higher profile have been really exciting. It also always makes me anxious because like you said, the more exposure you have, the more people want to criticize, you know? I actually can't say that I spend a ton of time worrying about that right now though. Say more about that. I mean, do you get any kind of reaction that you feel is related to how people perceive you as a, maybe not public figure, but as your artist persona that you've presented to the world, do you feel like you're getting feedback based on that versus the person that you are? I think the way that I would define that is like, if you're lesser known as an artist, only people who know you through the community are going to really know you. But then yeah. it's easier yeah. for people outside of that to form an opinion that's maybe not grounded in anything about you as a human. Yeah. And and I feel like you can kind of sense right away when something isn't making sense around like, mm-hmm. that's not who I interpret myself to be. And then 
Yeah, no, for sure. I guess in terms of like the part of it that causes me like self-consciousness or anxiety or whatever is really more about actually how my peers and the people I know Mm. see me. I don't think much about like the unknown people, but I do feel very conscious and self-conscious about my kind of not so much my artwork itself, but my identity. Because in addition to as an artist, you have to have a public identity. But also I've chosen to be a person who's kind of outspoken about certain things. And that's kind of been part of my my vibe. (laughs) And whether that's about maternal mental health stuff and mom life or about, I've gotten involved in this artist resale royalty stuff. And then more recently I was dabbling in NFTs. I, I, I experiment publicly. And I talk about it, you know, and, and I do feel judgment from my peers. Oh, interesting. Definitely. And do you think that's around like the blockchain and just capitalism in general? Yeah, that, I mean, honestly, like, this is something I don't talk about publicly very often, but there's such a class thing going on. And, you know, I'm 41 and I live in San Francisco, which is like one of the most expensive places on earth. And if you're still a working artist at this stage in a city like this, either you have been phenomenally lucky or you had oil under the ground somehow, meaning you had family money, you had a trust fund, you married some rich tech guy. It is really hard to still be doing this at this stage without some other kind of income. Yeah, That's fine, not judging that. Everybody has their own story, whatever. But the result of that is that like most of my community and honestly, even my close friends here come from a lot more privilege than I do because they were able to, you know, keep on being artists because of that. And so uh, it's a, it's a weird thing that me and actually my husband and I talk about it a lot because he's also from like not from money but has like worked his way up a lot into so he's like around people with money a lot as like a a Mm -hmm. business small business founder and stuff. And so it's something that we're like very conscious of kind of of like we're a little bit more of hustlers than most of our friends, <laughs> you know? Right. And there's a whole yeah class association with having to hustle. Exactly. Yeah. And so I'm very conscious of like, I do make choices yeah. based on like needing to make money because this is actually how I make my living. You know, this isn't like I have money some other way and then I make art. This yeah. is actually paying the bills and his business is also. So we have a kind of scrappy kind of hustler quality about us that we are a little bit self-conscious about, but that also is, it's who we are. (laughs) And I am glad you mentioned that because one thing I was going to say, if I had to guess what success looks like on your end, you are working like a dog, Mm, you know, and just not resting on your laurels at all. I just see you constantly in your studio when no one else is, you know, and not to say they're not doing other things, but I just, there's no doubt in my mind that you're working every bit of yeah. whatever you need to get done. That was not very articulate, but. No, that, I mean, I don't share a studio space there, but yeah. it, that does stand out very clearly because there's just an insane level of craft and detail in every little piece of artwork that you put out in the world. And if you've ever made anything in your life from folding an eight and 11 piece of paper to make a fortune teller, you know that the details <laughs> matter yeah. yeah you know and it's but side note not side note main note um 
we love talking about the the money stuff on the side woo because <laughs> there is you know it's it, it's just insane like you have yeah. a job that has only basically income stream based on hustle because there's no constant employment and then you have you know people who have such vast different levels of access to security blankets but one thing i have noticed in the art world this is kind of peripheral but also a part of it is that you know it, it, when you're 25 if there's 125 year olds making mm-hmm. artwork and then when you're 30 there's mm-hmm. 75 30 right. year olds and then as you get to like 40 45 50 55 mm-hmm. it's like 25 people then 12 people yeah. people drop out at a huge rate i mean understandably yeah. because it's really fucking hard to not make money and then you know, as I have said many times, my creative chi came out my vag when I gave mm-hmm. birth because I do not have the impulse to mm-hmm. make work in the same way yeah. since coming a mom. I just do not. Yeah. But- no, and that's the thing is like people, as like you're saying, with every five years or every decade, people drop out and and a big part of success is just being, you know, the last person standing kind of like being the person who keeps at it. But the reality is having financial security allows you to keep at it. And so then unfortunately, over time, the people who are still at it, you know, are, are the ones who had that, which is one of the reasons why I'm a big believer in artist resale royalties and these kinds of things that at least the idea is that over the long term, you're the value of your work continues to benefit you rather than just it being this like boom, one time sale and then it's over. Yeah. I was actually going to say that because I just talked to a woman who I went to the CCA gala with two other artists from the city. And one of them is an older woman. I want to say she's in her Mm seventies. She lives, you know, in the Emeryville artist co-op. And she's like, I have no 401k. I have no savings. My rent's like under a thousand dollars a month. My paintings are selling for 10 plus thousand dollars. And that is basically my retirement is that all of her work is now selling for enough where she's got an income stream that's pretty substantial to kind of keep her going. And it makes up for the fact that she had no security benefits at all for like, you know, 70 years. And I'm like, tried to explain to her the idea of the royalties Mm -hmm. because I'm really excited about Fairchain, who I would love for them to sponsor us. Um, (laughs) But even so, I'm going to still use them. But yeah, just I was explaining to her, you know, if you sign up with Fairchain, you would get money from all the resale instead of just hoping that your price points are going to go up as they do better in the second market. Right. Well, and especially because an artist, someone that age, but I mean, even at our age, you can see that your creative output is not consistent throughout your lifetime, right? There's these moments where you're supercharged and you have all this energy and maybe you have circumstances that allow you to stay up all night in the studio and whatever, you know, and then there's periods like you have a kid where like you have to pull back for a while, or maybe you have an illness or something, you know, and so this idea that our value is only, we only see return on our value in the moments when we're at absolute peak performance that doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> like that doesn't work. It's not fair. Yeah. It, it, that's the music industry model, isn't it? Where you see ro- you see royalties based on No, every creative every creative field has royalties except for visual yeah. art. Like I mean, yes, it is absolutely standard. Or, you know, writers like 
you know, my dad was a writer and among other things. And I think part of my feelings about this come from that. He died when I was 19 Mm. and, and, you know, it it wasn't, I didn't inherit anything really. And yet throughout my twenties and my early thirties and that period where you're making those kind of fork in the road choices, right. Of like, should I go to art school or not? Should I, do I need to take this second job so that, and then I won't have any studio time or do I, you know, all these kind of seemingly small at the moment. But then when you look back, you realize these choices are forks in the road that got you to where you are throughout that whole era of my life. I was occasionally getting these random checks in the mail of my dad's royalties for his books. And they weren't a lot. It would be like $1,200 or something like that, you know, every like four or five months. When you're you're 28 and trying to, you know, it it was, it was enough that it did at moments enable me to take like the more creative path. Yeah. And I see that now as like, oh, that actually had an effect on my choices. And I want to be able to give that to my children. You know, I need my art to keep benefiting my family even after I'm gone like it just I have to be able to pass something on you know to give them because also in the long run that would create a more creative culture more people would have the freedom to choose creative paths you know versus it being only for the elite you know well it also reminds me of I was so acutely aware my last couple of years of teaching at SFAI around like the kids in the room and I didn't know people's stories and and you can't see what people's financial backgrounds are Mm -hmm. based on much about their external. But I was always Mm -hmm. so acutely aware of how the debt was going to impact people in 10 years and the Mm -hmm. brutality of the, you know, thank God some of the kids, it was paid for by their parents or grants. But like, seriously, what is this Mm $100,000 in debt going to do to this 20? And when you make that choice, you don't have any clue what that means. (laughs) No, I I did that. And I just thought, I'm just going to work really hard and get like an office job for a while. Me too. Not realizing like, one, if your calling is to be an artist, that office job is not just a means to an end. It crushes your soul. And ultimately, I could not sustainably keep an office job yeah. because I would burn out or I would like, I don't know, I would self-destruct or become bad at my job. And so mm-hmm. it's like, I'm not a bad organizer, but I just couldn't emotionally handle the crushingness of doing something that wasn't aligned with my values. And I think that's Mm -hmm. what people don't realize potentially they're trading is the Mm -hmm. freedom to follow your journey instead of having to fit within a narrative to like make the money that you need to pay for something. Mm -hmm. But yeah, but it's such a terrible toss up because like then like, so what you don't go to school and get that education. Yeah. You just make art, but then you are left out of a lot of the channels of how that art is going to become seen and how you're going to be supported as an artist, you know, if you don't. No, get the sure. education and meet the right people and all that stuff. So it's yeah, it's tough. There's a certain way that an artist is supposed to present, I feel like, and that involves, yeah, having these really high-level connections, looking like you're not working a day job, mm-hmm. you know, not – but also not looking too expensive, you know, mm-hmm. but then also being able to, like, fit into a high-end environment without mm-hmm. losing your sense of identity oh, yes. as a creative. Oops. Yeah. Being able to being able to like fly wherever you need to for every art yes. and every event. So yeah, it's 
definitely not fair. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It no does. pressure. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds awfully, in some ways, like the the, mm-hmm. the woman catch 22. I remember mm-hmm. seeing this on like TikTok or whatever, but it's like embrace your aging, but don't actually age, <laughs> you know, love your body, but be a certain size, like right. work a lot, but have energy for all the other things. You know, it's just, it's, you know, yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. Which brings up the whole, like the, the artist mother concept yeah. oh too, yeah. which is like all the things you're saying of like, you're, you're supposed to appear a certain way in a, in a, an environment that way involves being, both intellectually available and physically available to show up at events all the time and sound smart, to look cool, to look relaxed, to look, well, every single one of those things is in conflict yeah. with being a parent. Just to go back to the financial thing, I do want to be like, I don't want to, I, I just always want to be like straightforward and, and, and honest about my situation, which is also that when I got together with my partner, Dave, he was working in the corporate world. This was like, when I was I was 25 we've been together for 17 years he was working in the corporate world and so he did have a very good paying job for the first I don't know some years for the first few years that we were together and then when we decided when we had kids he quit that job and it's been much scrappier since then but there was a period of years there which was like right after graduate school and stuff where I did benefit from having a partner with a stable income and that did make a difference for me. You know, it allowed me, I mean, I worked all through grad school and everything. Also, I was a wedding photographer, but it definitely made a difference to have someone with like a stable salaried job for sure. And then we decided to throw it all away and have him start his own business. Now you're the bringing it bacon. <laughs> it's been a little rougher since then. Yeah. But anyways, I just want to give credit to that support. And also when I think about this, this idea of longevity as an artist being the person who keeps doing it, obviously this financial stuff we're talking about is a big Mm. part of that. I also think something that's a big part of that is, and I, I, I say this Mm. when I talk to younger students and stuff is choosing people in your life who are not going to keep pushing you out of the thing you want. So like, you know, a lot of people's parents, Mm. for instance, are always telling you like, oh, you know, kind of like, when are you going to go get a real job attitude, right? And I didn't have parents like that. My parents Mm. had no expectations. (laughs) But I also know a lot of people whose partners are kind of that way, you know, where it's like, oh, yeah, it's cool that you're an artist because it's like Mm -hmm. hip and creative. But then when the rubber hits the road, it's like, okay, but how are you really going to make this work? And I really am grateful to have chosen a partner who yeah just gets that like art is a real thing you know and values it as like a real contribution in the world and therefore yes he's he's business minded he's always pushing me to make more money somehow but he's always pushing me to make more money within art he's not like just go do something normal you know and I think in the long run having that as your partner really helps you stay the course and not you know, because it's so hard to stay confident in yourself as an artist. And if the people around you also aren't confident in you, that's that's wearing. So, yeah, just want to give credit. That's just a theme that comes up a lot on um, the side woo, which is the difference between engaging with people who are there to support and be constructively supportive versus convincing somebody or ju- having mm-hmm. to justify your existence in a way. And justifying your existence at a base level is like demeaning and draining versus 
being around people who value the essence of what you're bringing to the, like the table of life, but are, yeah. are also saying, Hey, but yeah. you could do this, you could do that, you know, who are engaged in it as a yeah. process, but those are yeah. very, very different things. That's true. And one wears you down and one builds you up. Oh yes. The woo. <laughs> Definitely. Well, mm-hmm. to get a little bit more into the woo, one thing. Oh yes. The woo. <laughs> The woo, since we are here in the side woo, um, Mm -hmm. you had posted something on Instagram as you were preparing for your show that you have up right now at Equinome Mm -hmm. Gallery that you gave birth like three times in your dreams last night. (laughs) And I wanted you to talk a little bit about your dreams and like, do you have dreams like that often? What was going on with that? Because I've never, I've only given birth once and my baby was like a solid block of ice. And it was really gross, and but it wasn't dead. It just was like frozen. It was like ice baby. It was an ice baby. Um, but yeah, maybe you can talk a little bit about, are you an active lucid dreamer or do you encourage dreams? I am a very, I'm a very, very, very active dreamer. I, and I always have been kind of, it's to a degree that is kind of exhausting yeah. and not very restful. I wake up sometimes feeling like I just watched three action movies in a row. And then I have to wonder, yes, my body was sleeping, but like, what is that doing to my like adrenal system and stuff, you know? At the same time, I love it because I feel like there's like a whole world in there that I go into and have all these adventures. They do tend to be a little high stress, feels a little like the the, the tempo of a spy drama. Yeah is going on in there, you know? But yes, I've always dreamed a lot. I've always remembered my dreams a lot and thought about them a lot. And I have reoccurring Mm. places. I don't so much have reoccurring dreams over and over, but I have reoccurring like settings a lot. I have two kids. I've given birth twice and I do dream fairly often about things related to labor. Mm-hmm. A lot of times it's someone else's labor. I found I've had a lot of dreams over the last few years where like some close friend of mine is about to give birth and I'm preparing and running around and trying to, you know, and then inevitably things are, I, you know, in dreams where things are getting lost all the time yeah. and you're like the moment you find one thing, you lose something else. That's always happening. But yeah, one time I, when I was pregnant with my first kid, I dreamt right before I, shortly before I gave birth to her, I dreamt that I gave birth to a cat and it was so vivid. And then when uh-huh. I was in labor with her, my mom was there and my husband and right when she came out, they handed her to me and put her on my belly. And my mom says that I said, Oh my God, it's a baby. <laughs> and my mom was like, oh my what God. did you expect? And I thought, well, maybe, maybe I expected a cat. Maybe that was what I was thinking. I don't know. Um, I don't even remember saying that. You were like, oh, I hope that dream isn't real. Oh, no. Yeah. Mm. What in your psychology is represented by mm. having such yeah. elaborate and intricate dreams? Like what significance does it hold for you? Not specifically the birth dreams, but just dreams in general. Just in general, yeah. But also the birth dreams. Plus the birth dreams. Or, yeah, yeah, plus the birth dreams. I don't know. I mean, the birth dreams, like, you know, I had a very positive experience of childbirth, which is somewhat somewhat rare, you know? Like, it, I, I'm kind of, it's kind of my jam. 
I hated, I hated being pregnant. Wow. I didn't like pregnancy, but I, but I'm yeah. kind of like, I think I'm good at like bringing myself to an intense experience and having to perform for a short amount of time, you know? Yeah. So like birth is this thing where it's like, there's all this buildup, there's all this adrenaline, and then you got to like do it, you know, it's like a marathon, right? Whereas pregnancy is like this endless thing. <laughs> endless discomfort and I'm not good at that at all so so oh, yeah I think for me it's not a negative thing it's a positive thing but it's a kind of like I found a lot of power in it for myself mm. kind of but it's also you know it's also like life and death I mean I'm very conscious when I have friends who are at the in those last few weeks of pregnancy like this feeling of like let's all stay positive but like at the same time like I have known people where really scary terrible things have happened in that transitional moment and so it does feel like a precipice kind of you know mm. Clea I wanted to talk about your work a little bit your current show yes. is really beautiful as is all your work obviously Liz is a fan one thing came up for me looking at some of your newer pieces they really reminded me of de Kooning's excavation which is are you familiar with that at all yeah a little bit I haven't looked at it recently though in the context of this work but I'm going to now yeah I mean I wouldn't say there's like a direct connection visually mm -hmm. but just the process that you use for layering the textures and the shapes and the materials into the pieces. Mm -hmm. And then also, I think the the underlying interest around mining archive and history. And, and also, you used to have a poster, you have a poster in your door that says, my daughter's 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 daughter. Mm -hmm. And this idea of going deep into your deep personal history, I think is what the painting is about. Abstract expressionism is all about mining your subconscious. And so that painting has a mythological history mm -hmm. around how long he worked on it and all of his shadow work that he had to deal with while making mm -hmm. it. Well, and also all the kind of fragmented shapes, that sense of like chaotic torn forms yes. and stuff, which is in this, this current yeah. body of work of mine, definitely those kind of shapes things that look like shards or scraps or whatnot appear again and again in all different ways totally yeah I think that was I was wondering if you'd be able to talk a little bit about your relationship to mining history and the way you connect mm -hmm. to the idea of ancestry um, yeah yeah yeah, there's so, uh, yeah there's so many ways but for a long time my work was really focused on like the landscape and patterns and forms within the landscape and and thinking of those things as allegories for human experience but then it became really clear to me that most people don't perceive the landscape as an allegory for human experience <laughs> and that that's really personal to me and uh and so I felt like there was this kind of disconnect in how I was communicating with my audience and I have always been a nerd for material culture, but specifically like objects. Like I love those kind of museums that are like the museums of like the furniture and the decor rather than the fine art. You know, like I love, I love the way that like materials and mm -hmm. objects tell a story of the life lived around them, the way things get marked and the marks 
you know, the way that touch kind of leaves a story, whether that's a buildup of residue or a wearing down of something, that's always been something I was into, even as like a kid kind of being into archaeology. And so at some point, some years ago, I kind of shifted to, you know, using a lot of the same techniques I was using in the landscape, but having the physical subject matter be kind of artifacts from material culture. And a lot of times that's the past, but the very recent past. You know, I like to think about this idea of like the contemporary past. There's an element of pretend in the way I do things that I don't always say out loud. It's just the lens that I'm looking at things through. Maybe it comes from this. I grew up in this family that was like very deeply bohemian (laughs) and extreme kind of in that way and didn't really see themselves as part of the normal population. We were taught to see ourselves as like we're different from those people, not necessarily better or worse, but that like we don't belong in the mainstream. And so anytime Mm. that we entered a mainstream situation, my mom would say, like, just pretend we're anthropologists, you know, observing what's happening. The reality is, like, you can be this really, like, politically extreme, like, bohemian, whatever you want to be, but then you have kids, and your kids go to public school, and they get invited to birthday parties, and you end up having to do really mundane, middle-class crap, right? Like, no matter how cool you think you are, you know? And so my parents would, you know, we'd get, we'd be at, like, a birthday party at Chuck E. Cheese, or a miniature golf at India or things like this and anytime we were entering a situation like that it was always prefaced with this like we're just anthropologists like we can because it's a way of giving yourself a role of being like a participant observer where you're like yes I'm participating in this but naming myself as an observer makes me not as implicated in being part of this but it also gives me a way in which to interact then I became a photographer because I used to take pictures with the camera before I did all this stuff I do now. And being a photographer is a similar kind of passport for participation in a situation you don't feel comfortable in. It gives you access to things without, and it gives you a role so that you're not uncomfortable, but it doesn't necessarily make you one of them. How has that influenced you now? I'm just curious, like on a personal level, because that's a pretty intense message to send a child You know, I could see that really sticking with you about like, how do you then integrate yourself into society going forward, you know, because the world is not bohemian, (laughs) you know? Yeah, I think if you talked to my mom about it from a parenting perspective, my mom is still very much alive and working and thinking about all these things. (laughs) And we're very close. I think in her mind, it was probably meant to soften the sense of alienation that we were taught to have. So I think that the alienation was coming a little more from my dad. And then my mom was like, okay, well, but we have to participate in this situation. So how can we give ourselves a matrix through which to understand our participation? Mm. And so then the anthropologist or the, that kind of thing was like her way of doing that. So it was actually, I think, a way of tempering the, the alienation, which I still use it. I have very much embraced it. I mean, when I became a mom and suddenly entered mom culture, which is crazy, I was like, thank God I have this way of operating is to go to all these. Because when I had my first kid, none of my friends had kids, you know? I mean, not that I was young. I was 34, but, you know, artists. And a lot of my friends are gay, a lot of them are artists, a lot of them aren't having kids, you know, and so I didn't really have like a 
natural mom community. And then, so I would, I, I was desperate for it. So I would join all these like, you know, mommy and me group at the library and like all that kind of stuff. And man, did I need that anthropologist lens in order to participate yeah. in that stuff. But it also is a way of making things that aren't very interesting, way more interesting. If you have to attend like a cocktail mixer for some mm. art thing that you're feeling like, oh shit, I have to go to this. I'm supposed to show up. Really don't feel like it. But then you're like, wait, I'm an anthropologist. I get to observe the people in their native habitat, like interacting and like, yeah. you know, it. it's so much fun. So That's I don't know. I've, I've really embraced it. No, I like that. <laughs> Actually, I have come full circle as you started talking. Like at first I thought, that that was maybe a judgmental way of approaching it. But then Mm -hmm. in a way, it's actually more free of judgment than if you're like, we're better than these people. Don't engage. You know, it's like you're staying curious. No, it's less about judgment. It's more about observation and curiosity. Exactly. Yeah. And I feel like it's it's really cool, actually. But it also keeps you from wholesale buying into mainstream culture, which... I also had a little bit of a distance exactly. too because of various things about my upbringing. And, and even now I'm going to totally use that going to a cocktail party, you know, because I think that awkwardness yeah. and then the instant impulse to like judge or reject something that you don't feel comfortable yeah. around is No, for sure. For sure. And it's also a little bit different than an alternative mode of interacting, which is play a role, you know, pretend to be one of yeah. them. Right. right. Like I remember yeah. feeling this when I first met Dave, my partner, like I said, he had this very corporate job and we were expected to go to all these like dinners at his boss's house and like weird corporate events. And it was all these wives. None of the wives worked. It was like such a different scene than what I was from. And I was uncomfortable participating in that, but I wanted to be supportive of him. There was the option of pretending I was like them and amplifying the fact that I wasn't like them or giving myself a role of observing and curiosity, which I think has worked well, but I can't even remember how we got to this subject. And I know I'm not answering the question I was asked. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, I think I had asked, cause you were talking about how you became interested in like the history oh, of right. objects. Yes, that, that. But I'm really oh, glad yeah. you told that side story because that was really interesting. Story. Yes. Well, in that vein, that kind of curiosity about stories, about other people, about histories, that was something I've kind of always had and that I was taught as well. And so, so I kind of shifted into working with these objects from material culture and making the, the, the leap in content from forms in the landscape being these emotional allegories to patterns and forms within material culture, having this like human emotional content embedded in them seems to be an easier leap. Neither is direct. I mean, if I actually just wanted to say what I'm saying, I might as well just like make figurative work with people in it, right? I just don't really do that though. <laughs> like it's just not my thing. I mean, it kind of reminds me of Sarah and I were just talking about this the other day, mm-hmm. the new topographics, you know, when people were kind of interested in redefining the mm-hmm. landscape photograph as something that was made by humans as much as it was made by nature mm-hmm. and even nature in terms, you know, was made by humans in terms of how we perceive it recreationally. But the classic new topographics Mm -hmm. image of the buildings or the phone wires or stuff like that is 
a way to translate mm-hmm. the concept of landscape into a much smaller digestible mm-hmm. pill form, basically, where you relate to it without even taking a leap. Mm-hmm. There, you're just there, you know, you're, you're just in it. And yeah, I'm just sort yeah. of drawing that analogy to your work where you're just in this emotional mm-hmm. landscape when you look at your work and there's not a lot of translation. Like mm-hmm. you don't have to like analyze or make too many jumps or, you know, write an essay in your right. head about why you, you're experiencing it a certain way. It really like hmm. just is. Well, what's interesting about that um, too is that like, translated. you know, there tends to be these like ripples of art movements right and they get recycled generationally but they get changed with each round and I feel like a lot of that has to do with who's the professors at art schools during a certain era and then what do they pass on to that round of students and then how does that round of students interpret it and pass it on to the next round or whatever you know when I was in undergrad and just also in my my 20s and whatnot the professors were all new topographics guys. That was basically like the air, you know, because their moment was in the seventies and then they got teaching jobs. And then, you know, like it was like just timing wise, Mm -hmm. those people had a big effect, I think Mm -hmm. on my generation of photographers, which is basically the generation of photographers right before digital happened. Kind of, we were like the last Mm -hmm. group that was fully analog educated. I don't know if Elizabeth, you were, you're, you were educated with photography mainly, right? That was your medium. Yes. Yes, totally. Yeah, so I don't know if you if this rings true for you or not. No, I I, I missed the digital. Yeah. I I got out of school right and before. I was like, what the hell? Yeah, exactly. is this? It felt really crappy yeah. to have this not like, have this you know, seismic shift and be like, I don't know what anybody's doing. Yeah. But carry on. So, anyways, I do feel like that, like the new topographics and that period of photography had a really huge effect on me, but there's something really deadpan, you know, like the aesthetic is very cold and flat, just the stepping back and looking kind of thing. Your arms are crossed when you're looking at it. Yeah, exactly. Which is like the opposite of how I feel and the opposite of the work I want to make. And yet it's similar in that there is this thing about the relationship between people on the landscape and the built environment and how we're leaving our mark on things physically. So it's, I mean, I would never, ever fit my work into that, but I can see like a lineage kind mm-hmm. of from some of my professors from undergrad and the way they kind of shaped my my practice and my views. And then, but then how do you take like those ideas and then up, apply them via a lens that is female, much more interested in drama, <laughs> not because I'm female, but just coincidentally. Yeah. <laughs> But much more interested in, you know, a kind of like aesthetic and emotional drama rather than that kind of like cold deadpan vibe. And then also cameraless photography Mm. and like hands-on techniques because new topographics is all super, I mean, it's like the straightest of straight photography, right? Pick up your camera. It's all super realistic, lens-based, nothing manipulated, you know what I mean? And so it's, I'm no, sure no, a lot on, of those, on. and I love new topographics just as an aside for people. I'm sure there was a lot of like, don't cry, you know, just print what you took, print what you took. Print yes, what you exactly. Took. Yeah. Which is but it's also, me. you know, what it's reminding <laughs> me of too, is like new topographics is outside and your work is inside. And like, that is such a, a male 
you know, if we're going to get into mm. sort of old gender dichotomies, mm-hmm. like uh, the world mm-hmm. outside versus the world in the home. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is, but my work was outside oh, for many true. years. It only switched to being like interior, like objects and whatnot in around mm-hmm. when I had kids mm-hmm. was when it switched actually. Prior to that, most of my work was actually made like outdoors at night using the landscape mm-hmm. as my dark mm-hmm. room kind of, and very much dependent on things that men get to do, like travel to weird places at weird time, weird weather conditions in the middle of the night. And then suddenly when I had kids, I was like, this is too yeah, inconvenient. Totally. I can't be like toting a baby around on my back while I'm doing this, you know? I don't know. This whole period since like coming back to the studio post like the lockdown zone has been so much about like, it sounds really cheesy, but it's been a lot about my own transformation and reinvention and giving myself permission and I mean everything's always like you know I don't know I I feel like ever since I had kids I'm in a level of transformation that is like what I had when I was like you know 18 19 20 22 when you're in that mode where you're like I am be oh my god and you can like feel it happening you're like I'm becoming this new person like my mind is growing my whatever all of that and then there was a period of like kind of just being me and for whatever reason since I had kids I have been in like full transformation non-stop for the last seven years and it just keeps coming like I keep thinking mm. like okay now I've settled into a new phase and then it's like uh. no here comes another wave of it like, so I don't know this this period has been like that and and this work has been really also affected by, I have had a couple of really violent mm. traumas in my life in the last year and a half, like during the pandemic, not pandemic related though, without going into detail. They were both, both happened to like the two women closest to me in the world. My mom was attacked by a guy <sighs> who broke into her house and like tried to kill her. And then, you know, we've been endlessly dealing with like the legal fallout and her trauma that happened about six weeks after my best friend my lifelong best friend her partner dropped dead in front of her in their apartment and she called me and I came and we were with his body for three hours waiting for the coroner and it was like a whole a totally out of the blue like and then her trauma and trying to get her resettled and then six weeks later this attack happened on my mom and so this period like the first half of the pandemic I was fine because I had a new baby so I was kind of in like lockdown anyways you know and so then that happened I had this art project it got into the MoMA I was like I got this pandemic and then that November of that year whatever year that was everything kind of fell apart and then it was just like one crisis after another and just really feeling the trauma of my mom and my best friend and being their support person for both of them and feeling like the body's role in all of that and the way the body responds to trauma and so I think even though that's not the explicit subject of this work it's all in there and that sense of what we mentioned before about like these repeating motifs of fragmentation and things shredding and falling apart and then kind of pieces fitting back together like a puzzle and then coming apart again that is kind of about that I think for me and and about and the title rainbow bruise is really just a metaphor for post-traumatic growth Mm -hmm. right the the kind of transformation and maybe if Mm -hmm. you're lucky growth that can happen in the wake Mm -hmm. of trauma right oh yeah that's how I got mm. to this body of work. Well, 
Um, yeah. That is mind blowing. And it's almost hard to know how to talk about that level because your mom, your best friend and you like that's a tripod, you know, like that's a tripod upon which yeah. it sounds like a lot of your emotional security and identity is built and to have two mm-hmm. of the legs of the tripod threatened so dramatically mm-hmm. is just, you know, heartbreaking and yeah. And then I think also, like, you know, being a mom, yeah. having little kids, like, where do you put the hard stuff? Because <laughs> you can't express it at home. You can't even talk about it. And I mean, my hard stuff, as well as the hard stuff going on in the world, of which there has been plenty the last two years, right? And like, I can't, my husband and I can't even talk about like right. what's happening in the news, because we don't want the kids to because at first we used to, we used to just share everything with our daughter up until she was about five and a half. And then she got such insane anxiety that we like way dialed back our like super liberal parenting of like, it's fine. NPR can be on all the time. She's going to learn it anyways. You know, we had to like really rein it in a little, Mm. but so the result of that is like, where do you put all your feelings about Mm. what's happening? And Mm. I feel so infinitely grateful that I get to come to work and have a job where I can Mm -hmm. put those feelings. If I didn't, like what you were saying, Sarah, before about like having a a admin corporate job was soul crushing. I just think about like, if I had that kind of a job and then I had my kids at home, there would be absolutely no space in my life for my own subjectivity. And I don't know how I would cope. And the fact that I get to come to work and put all of that into my work is my saving grace. But what that means is I had to shape my work to be even more a place where I could put that. And so this recent work, I would say, is much more, it's not about some outside subject, which makes it harder to talk about. I can't be like, oh, this is about this. And here's the story about the thing. It's like, no, it's just about me like falling apart and reforming and falling Mm. apart again. (laughs) Well, two quick things come to mind. One is like people don't cope, you know, like there's a lot of not coping in the world and a lot of drug addiction and a lot of, you know, violence towards self or others, as mentioned, like if people are in impossible situations where coping, there's no more outlet to be able to cope. But yeah, like for example, like I worked a job where I was a receptionist at this large investment bank and I was going out of my mind and I didn't know if my colleagues were. And then I realized they were as well because they would book, there's a nap room because it was a built-in like mental health thing to the company and they had like mom rooms and nap rooms. And literally I had colleagues who would book those out for the entire lunch break every day where they would go in this dark room and nap and snack for the an hour every day because they were so overwhelmed. And I'm like, yeah. I freaking get it, you know? And yeah, I'm glad that totally. they have something like that because it just wasn't like, I think people who that is their calling, I don't want to denigrate it. I want to say I'm really grateful for the jobs that I had because they saved my life in a lot of ways. But also, if it's not your calling, it does start to wear you down. But anyway, Liz, yeah. Mm-hmm. This is a totally separate note. Just looking at your work, it is to when I experience it, it's such a conversation with like every aspect of photo history. Like it feels so photo based, even when it looks like painting or it looks like, you know, no camera in sight for 100 miles in all directions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, you have this documentary aspect you know the that very famous article by 
Sarkowski, the five elements of photography, it's time and mm-hmm. the thing mm-hmm. itself and yeah. perspective or whatever right. it is. And it's very old school, mm-hmm. like from the seventies, I think trying to justify, mm-hmm. you know, that art making happened. Yeah. Photography as an art form. form. Yeah. But there mm-hmm. are all of these, like the traditional photography is an art form where I feel like you just engage in each of those aspects as a nuanced fluid thing so you have like time I mean time Mm -hmm. like you were just saying this like Mm -hmm. gestation for for the work to come into being on the roof of your house Mm -hmm. and then you have a document the artifact itself and then you have Mm -hmm. the perspective of the art anyway there's this love letter conversation with all of the different ways photography functions and that was just something that I could never get enough of being like photography is true, but not true. It, you know, no, I love, I love how you're articulating that because I'd forgotten about that article, which I've read years ago, but, but it's what I intend in the sense that even though my work doesn't necessarily look like photography that much, or like what people think photography is or whatever, I, even in I mean, one, most of my work is really not abstract at all. It's like very indexical. It's very pointing to a real thing, right? However, even when it is abstract, I try to still always utilize the strength of photography, which to me is this quality of like a relationship to the real, right? So even in a piece that's like just some weird textural pattern, right? If you look closely, there's this weird quality about it where you're like, but it's evidence of something, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's the part that I'm like, that's what painting can't do, that photography mm. can. That's what's like really special about photography. And so even when I pull really far away from straight photography, I still try to keep some of those qualities of the relationship to light, the relationship to kind of evidence and this like sense of realness that isn't even totally conscious. It's like an optical thing. Like when you look at a texture that has that relationship to like the real and the way light actually hits a surface, your brain recognizes it as something real, even if you can't identify with words what it is. You know, it's kind of this like optical photographic appearance. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so I try to maintain those qualities even while stretching some of the other ones. So I really love that you picked up on that list. That's a good way to, it's a good way to think about it. Well, and now, now everybody has to run out and oh, yeah. find the book oh, evidence, yeah. of course. <laughs> How do you guys deal with mom guilt? I get cat guilt, like, because, you know, in which I realize it's not at all the same, but I do when yeah. I cat sit for these cats. I just look at them and, like, whenever I leave the house, I'm like, I'm sorry, you're going to be trapped here. You can't go anywhere. I have cat guilt and mom guilt because I have a cat that I used oh. to treat like my child and now I have kids and so my cat is like completely yeah. ignored. Yeah, that's real. <laughs> yeah, it's terrible, the mom guilt. It's really constant. It is so, I was just thinking about it yesterday actually and I was just thinking how like no matter how much you like intellectually tell yourself like it's okay that I work, it's okay that I'm not there, it's okay that they're in childcare, it's okay, whatever, like I feel it just every single day, like a million times a day. Yeah. There's just no way around it. I just think that you have to keep reminding yourself kind of that the choices you're making are okay and that you believe in them, you know? I also think I try to see long-term. I try to think what will my kids think when they're 35, you know? And while 
right now, it's just like, mom, why do you have to go to work again? Why do you have to go to the studio? You know, when they're like 35, hopefully they'll be like, it's so cool that my mom was like a working artist. Right. And hopefully that will like inform them in some way. Maybe 25 or 15. Maybe. But you know, I think that the mom guilt it makes me feel better knowing that I also can be like, I did something wrong and I need to improve that. And feeling like I can also see where I'm not as solid as I could be. And for some reason that feels Mm -hmm. like if I feel like I can grow in the role, then that helps me to feel less like I have to be perfect, which helps the guilt. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do. I remember someone I don't know who saying to me that one thing about kids is that like, because they're so, they change so fast and they're so malleable and they grow so much quicker than us that you always have another chance, you know, not that you can't like permanently fuck up your kid cause you can, but like, you know, if you do a bad job at some interaction with your kid, you're going to have another chance real soon. <laughs> like, yeah. Also, you know, I try to remember it, it's easier for me to apply it to other moms than to myself, but that what your kids really need, ultimately, it doesn't matter whether they have formula or breast milk, it doesn't matter whether their toys are plastic or wooden or whatever, what your kids actually just need is to feel that they are loved and accepted. Period. Like, that's it. And so whatever way you can do that, even if you're not there all the time, even if you fail them sometimes, as long as that's like the baseline of their existence, you're doing a good job. Well, that's emotional resilience. Like I just sum everything up. I want my child to have emotional resilience so that when things suck ass and they will suck ass and they can live through it. Clea, thank you so much for coming on the side woo. Yeah, I feel like we didn't get to talk very much woo because we just had so much to say. Which <laughs> is such a great problem to have. We had he so did. much to say, man. Okay. That is way more important than being on topic. This conversation right. was the shit. Yeah. So thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's fun. <laughs> That's all for this week's episode. Thanks for side wooing with us. We release episodes every other week on Thursday. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast for good karma points. Until we meet again in the woo.